Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So uh, in this first night of this new community that we're, that we're forming, I was wondering what can uh, talk about that would be relevant to uh, both groups, people who've been practicing for the last few weeks and people who've just started their retreat. And uh, what I decided to talk about is um, a, uh, a teaching that's right in the, uh, the Satipatthana Sutta, the uh, Sutta, the Discourse on Mindfulness. And that is the uh, teaching on clear comprehension. Um, these are the. These are the uh, the words from uh, from the discourse. This is in the first foundation of mindfulness. Uh, mindfulness, mindfulness of the body. Uh, mindfulness with clear comprehension. And again, a practitioner in going forward and in going back applies clear comprehension. In looking straight on and in looking elsewhere, one applies clear comprehension. In bending, and in stretching the limbs, one applies clear comprehension. In wearing the robes and carrying the alms bowl, one applies clear comprehension. In eating, drinking, chewing, and savoring, one applies clear comprehension. In obeying the calls of nature, one applies clear comprehension. In walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking, speaking, and being silent, one applies clear comprehension. In another translation of that discourse, the term full awareness is used. Full awareness. Now, Clear comprehension, the term is sampajanya in, uh, in Pali. Clear comprehension goes together with sati, S-A-T-I, mindfulness, sati sampajanya, mindfulness and clear comprehension that um, really rounds out the practice, what we're doing here. Bare attention is a a connection, a direct connection with what is happening right now. And it's usually um, devoid of any kind of commentary. It is simply breathing and knowing you're breathing in. Breathing out, knowing you're breathing out. Just being with things as they are. Clear comprehension is knowing the context in which things are happening so that you're not 
so focused and lost in the activity that you don't understand certain principles of reality. As uh, Ramdas put it, uh, he talks about it as knowing your zip code. You know, as you're lifting your foot and placing it down, it's good to know the environment that you're in. And there are actually four aspects of clear comprehension that uh, Yanaponikatera uh, writes about. This is a wonderful book, by the way, if you're not familiar with it, The Heart of Buddhist Meditation. It's, it's a book uh, completely uh, going into detail on the Satipatthana Sutta and, um, and all the aspects of it and the commentaries. And Yanaponika uh, talks about the four classical aspects of clear comprehension that uh, emerge from that piece in the, um, uh, in the discourse. And the four are clear comprehension of purpose, clear comprehension or full awareness of suitability, clear comprehension of the domain of meditation, and clear comprehension of reality. So I want to go through each of these and hopefully, particularly as we start, as the, the people who joined us are starting the, uh, the retreat, um, can connect with why it is that that we're here and uh, and all of us remember our motivation for practice as we uh, we practice together the first one clear comprehension of purpose basically that means having an emotional connection to practice this is not just an exercise in breathing or in walking or in even paying attention in this moment although that's that's the essence of the exercise it's done for a reason it's not just to learn to be a good breath watcher you know that's a nice trick if you can learn it oh i'm a pretty good breath watcher but you know what so what? Are you here because you want to learn how to feel your breath more clearly? It's a good thing to do, but why are you here? This clear comprehension of purpose is really getting in touch with why our, our heart is motivated to practice in the first place. I do this at the beginning of most retreats. I did at the beginning of the uh, of the month, asking people to connect. Why are you here? What got you here? Remember when you sent in your deposit slip or your deposit check, and uh, you said, "Well, here we go." What was it that made you decide to do this? Now. There's different aspects of this clear comprehension of purpose. There's intention, there's motivation, but there's also 
an overarching purpose of what it is inspires you to practice. And that can change over time. When I first was practicing, I had certain set of motivations, but over time it's changed. And not that there's any one right answer. Sometimes it's been to become enlightened, which is a very inspiring um, goal or inspiration. Sometimes it's been to learn to love well. Sometimes it's been to um, just to purify to the to the extent that I'm able to actualize whatever is is here to the greatest extent possible. It can change over time, but that heartfelt inspiration to practice really needs to be here in order to do this kind of work. There's a Tibetan saying, everything rests on the tip of one's motivation. Everything rests on the tip of one's motivation. And so if you can get really clear on that um, heartfelt sincerity of motivation that inspires you to practice. It's something you can always draw from when you get caught or confused or wonder why you're here, which is certainly a common thought that happens the first couple of days or even after two weeks. Why am I here again? Uh, A number of years ago, I I was uh, on my way to, uh, to Asia uh, to be part of a, a conference, and um, my plane was stopping in Germany, and, uh, and that was just the route that, that I got, and it was stopping in Frankfurt. And when um, some friends heard that I was stopping in Frankfurt, they said, oh, you've got to check out Mother Mira. She's really great, and this Indian... Uh, uh, holy woman. And I said, okay. A few people said, oh, definitely check her out. And I read a little and I, I liked her photograph. And so I said, okay, I'll, I'll go, go check her out. And one friend said, uh, before, just know that she has the, the power to, to grant you whatever you wish for. And okay, well, that sounds cool. That's a good, good incentive. So, um, so I went there, and I, I was there for a couple of nights, and um, kind of checked out the scene. Um, and um, what happens w- is that uh, you come up, and you're in front of this holy woman, and you look at each other in the eyes, and I'll get a real hit of that uh, energy, and then you bend your head down, and she kind of does something. I've heard it untying the karmic knots or something like that, and she starts to, you know, um, knead your 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 head and your neck a bit, you know. And then you look again, and then you go. It's about 45 seconds. I timed it because you know you just kind of want to get the scope of the scene. And there's somebody in the uh, in the in the batter's deck, you know, there's somebody in the on-deck circle, you know, and when you're ready, you go up to the uh, on-deck circle, and then it's your turn, and then you go. 
So and you're there for about oh two hours or so, and uh, well everybody goes through. So um, I didn't want to go right up at the the beginning. I wanted to just you know check things out, but mostly I wanted to say, well, if she's going to grant me what I wish for, what do I really want? And that was worth the whole trip. Because then I started to get in touch with, what do I really want? Hmm. Do I want stuff? No. Do I want a better this or a better that? No. What do I really want? And it took me about, oh, an hour, an hour and a quarter or so before I just got clearer and clearer what I really, really want. You know, gosh, if this is my one shot, I better make it good. And um, it was a very powerful thing for me. This is like eight years later where I got clear just sitting in that space and who knows what she, what she did in my karmic knots in my, my head or my body, but uh, I've returned to that, that reflection I, every day I return to it. Every time before I give a talk, I get clear and I get reconnected with that. Whenever I'm seeing somebody, uh, I just take a moment and reconnect. And just inclining the mind towards that that purpose um, reminds me what's important to me. So I just ask you to reflect. Just imagine if you're in front of somebody like that, or say a genie came and said, okay, I will grant you your wish. If you don't tell me, you just take your own chances, you know. But if you get clear and tell me what it is that's really important to you, you'll have it. Just go inside. What is it that you would wish for? What really matters to you? If you can feel it, it's like your whole body knows, too. There's just a rightness and an ease and a support. And this is something that perhaps you can remind yourself as much as you like what really matters to you, why you are practicing. Open your eyes if you like. When we get in touch with our clear comprehension of purpose, it holds everything else in that space. It focuses our energy, it focuses our effort, and also when we forget and we blow it and we do unskillful habits or uh, you know just get lost, we can always come back to that as a support. 
the more we are connected with our higher purpose, the the easier it is to come home to that heartfelt intention. And so, as you are more focused or more open to your clear comprehension of purpose, it's something you can always ask yourself right in the middle of your day as you're practicing, why am I doing what I'm doing? Not with a scolding, but just, is this in line with my purpose? And even if you forget, it's never too late to come back. There's a beautiful uh, discourse that the Buddha gives to uh, Rahula, his son, advice to Rahula. He's, he was, uh, his son was seven when he gave this discourse. And the Buddha had just come back to, uh, to his hometown. And Rahula was, uh, and became a monk for, um, I think, uh, about a year or so when this discourse was given. And uh, the Buddha says, you, Rahula, there will be times when you can feel an impulse, where you can, you can know that you are about to do something. And he says, if you can, just pause for a moment and ask yourself, is this going to lead to my happiness, or is this going to lead to unhappiness? And if you can take that time to get clear, then just act accordingly. And if it's going to lead to suffering, don't do it. Obviously, if it's going to lead to happiness, then keep on doing it. And then he said, sometimes you might not be able to catch the impulse. You might be in the middle of the action. And he says, if you can remember, as soon as you remember, just ask yourself, what is this leading to? this going to lead to happiness or suffering? And then act accordingly. Refrain, desist if it's unwholesome, and continue if it's wholesome. And then he goes on to say, sometimes you might not realize it until after you've done the act or said the words. And then he says, at that moment, reflect. Okay, how did that feel? Was that useful? Was that helpful? Or was it not? He said, it's never too late. It's never too late. You don't have to beat yourself up for having blown it. You just start right then and there and get in touch with what really matters to you, getting in touch with your clear comprehension of purpose. That takes being able to listen carefully to what your purpose is. So there's a, a, a kind of art in listening to where the, the message comes from. And then I'll talk about that in a little while. But the effort that we put into practice is not one that comes from our head. I should do it this way. I should do it, you know, I've got to be more that. The should is all extra. Effort comes from the heart. It's the sincerity of heart that we bring to practice. <clears throat> this is from Nisargadat. <coughs> I am that. He says, Your sincerity will guide you. Devotion to the goal of freedom and perfection will make you abandon all theories and systems 
and live by wisdom, intelligence, and active love. Whatever name you give it, will, or steady purpose, or one-pointedness of the mind, you come back to earnestness, sincerity, honesty. When you are in dead earnest, you bend every incident, every second of your life to your purpose. You do not waste time and energy on other things. You're totally dedicated. Clear comprehension of purpose. There's one more thing about it that I'm reminded of in being around the, uh, the Dalai Lama who I'm sure most of you have, have been around an extraordinary being. And uh, he was asked at this, this gathering that, uh, that I was part of, what do you do with all the, all the suffering, all the suffering around you? How do you handle it? And he said, my sincerity of motivation is my protection. And then the next day somebody asked, what do you do with all the fear around you? So much fear. And he said, sometimes he gets afraid. And he said, my sincerity of motivation is my protection. Getting in touch with your own sincerity of heart is a protection in itself. So this is the first. The second of the clear comprehensions is of suitability. And what that means is having a sense of the appropriateness given the time, the place, the circumstances, how you can carry on practice. So you're adapting, you're flexible given the right, given, given the circumstances, how you can really keep the practice going, particularly here on retreat. It also applies outside of retreat, just when to know how to, when to keep the practice going and when to um, just put it down. Like if you are in the middle of, you know, uh, a meeting, it's probably not the time to just, you know, and you're making a presentation to go, you know, in, out, you know, rising, falling, you know, you've got a function. So sometimes you just put it down and then pick it up later. But here in the retreat, you don't have to worry about anything else. It's just coming back to being present. But you also have to know your surroundings. You know, if you're doing slow walking, say you're in a slow walking mode, you know, lifting, moving, placing, right? And you're at a threshold and there's 60 people behind you and you're going, you're going to feel the vibes, right? <laughs> you got to know, you know, your zip code. Or on the food line, there you are, oh, reaching, spooning, you know. Not a time for, to be a zombie, right? Or your work meditation, right? Part of it is just knowing the speed, the context, how to really make it a mindfulness practice given the situation, ways to become mindful. And 
how I can best connect with this moment. So another aspect of this suitability is matching your awareness with your level of, um, of activity. You know, sometimes it might be um, a very precise awareness. Sometimes it's a very refined perception of the breath. Mm, and you're really right there. You're really connecting with it. This probably won't happen if you've just come by you know, tomorrow. Give yourself a few days you know, before you're zooming in. It takes a few days to land. Remember that. And you can't hurry up that process either. But suppose you're really connecting with the breath. At that time, you just keep on fine-tuning. Mm, let's take a look, a more careful look, just for the, the curiosity of it. At other times, it'll be all you can do to know you're on planet Earth. That's not the time to try to go in there microscopically. That's the time to just know that you're sitting. You know, Manindraji, uh, this wonderful teacher, said, if you sit and know you're sitting, the whole of the Dharma is revealed. Isn't that a comforting thought? <laughs> you can keep it as simple as that. Just sit and know you're sitting. You're doing fine. Okay? And that moment of mindfulness is just as potent as feeling you know, those subtle sensations within the breath. So it's really, how can I meet the moment most skillfully? When to have a, a fine lens, a fine aperture? When to be more panoramic? When to move to changing experience? And when to just stay focused? If you're getting claustrophobic, when to just open up to a more choiceless awareness? If you're getting spacey, when to come back and focus to just that simplicity of feeling the breath or lifting your foot. When to do Vipassana practice, when to do Metta practice, because it's hard for you to stay balanced in an easy way with what's going on. The beauty of, the, of this practice is there's so many different ways for you to connect with the moment that you don't have to worry about it being a cookie-cutter recipe. If you can be present with what's happening, that's the main principle. But if it's a struggle, if it's really tight, if there's not a way that you can be connecting and open and spacious with what's happening, then to just allow that ease and spaciousness in whatever way works for you, whether it's going to, uh, to do some metta, or maybe going for a more natural walk. So clear comprehension of suitability. What will match your level of, uh, of perception? On one retreat, I remember I was in, uh, at IMS, the, the three-month course, and um, I'd been going slowly for, you know, for a while. It was really, it was, Sometimes it gets so delicious, you know, when you're just in that mode. And it have been going, you know, pretty good for a while. And then at some point, it seemed like I just hit a wall. 
And, but I was keeping on going that really slow, you know, tortoise speed. And uh, this went on for a few days and a few more days. And it was getting really tight, tighter and tighter. But, you know, I had my program and I was a good yogi and I was going to do it the way that I knew really worked. You know. And at some point I was getting just wound up into this big knot and I said, enough of this. This is crazy. I'm just going to go for a walk and I'm not even going to be mindful. Right? <laughs> it just felt kind of rebellious. Okay, I'm not going to be mindful. So there. But there was a part of me that just knew that I needed to get some space. So, And I hadn't been out for, you know, must have been a couple of weeks by that time. And I put on my, you know, boots and my parka and my, you know, got all my gear around and it was, I was, you know, so excited. Wow, I'm going to go for a regular human normal walk <laughs> and I'm not going to be mindful. Right? And I started walking, you know, not trying to do anything. Left, right, left, right. Hearing snifflings to left, right, left, right. Thinking left, right, left. I couldn't stop being mindful. As soon as I stopped trying to be mindful, just to get that space, that was what I needed. And it opened up a whole other sense of ease and, and connection and um, openness of heart. So I want to share with you, there's no one right way to do this, but what I would suggest is that you put your whole heart into it and remember to keep it spacious. Remember, if things get really tight, to just create some ease and space in the mind. Remember one Tibetan teacher, he came here and he gave a talk, and uh, you know, it was very well attended. He was a very uh, charismatic uh, teacher. And he said at one point, um, all of practice can be summed up in two words, and everybody you know, it's like the old E.F. Hutton commercial, you know, what's, what's he going to say? And I listened to this talk on tape. I wasn't there uh, in person, but somebody gave me the tape, you know. And he said, be spacious. That's a good reminder for people who are so committed to doing it right and being impeccable, just to keep a sense of spaciousness in your practice as well. So, part of that suitability is really listening inside to what you need. Now, how can you tell if what you need is what you're hearing? Maybe you're hearing, hmm, it would really be nice to go for a cup of tea right now. And maybe it's coming from a place of real wisdom, or maybe it's coming from a place of avoidance. How do you know? Hmm, it would really be good to just stay with the program, sitting, walking, sitting. It might be coming from a place 
of tremendous sincerity and impeccability, or it might be you really should stay with the program, and staying with the program is coming with a, a heavy superego over you that just is getting you tighter and tighter. So it's not so much what you, what you hear as getting in touch with the place that it's coming from. Now, how do you do that? Because there's so many different thoughts that come through your head, aren't there? How can you trust it? Well, I find that it's helpful to check in two places. One, your body. Just notice if there's a contraction and a tightness when you get the next message. Or is it coming from a place that's really at ease and connected? Another place is listening to the tone of the voice. Listening to the tone of the message. So many messages come through with a finger wagging at us saying, you really should do this. Let's get on with it. Or with a grasping. Oh, what if I don't? Or, oh, I think I'm going to blow it. Or I really need to. Or fear. That kind of agitated energy is probably not coming from the wisest place. There are other messages, other voices that come through really supportive that say, this feels right. This doesn't feel so right. Let's do it a different way. That there's an ease, there's an openness, there's a sense of um, kindness and compassion, and yet a real wisdom. Just connecting from a deeper place. You know, the, you know the difference that I'm talking about? And it's, it's not so inaccessible if you just take the time to listen carefully, to hear the message and hear the tone that it comes through. And if there's a jaggedness to it or a contraction, wait until it's coming from a deeper place, even though it might say exactly the same thing. Just wait until you feel connected to your heart. Wait until your body is not wound up in knots, and you say, mm, this feels right. It's right there. Clear comprehension of suitability. Basically, listening carefully and trusting yourself. The third clear comprehension is the domain of meditation. Now, in the Nyanaponika's um, uh, writings, he's saying, okay, when you are doing full-on practice, when you're not in your uh, worldly life, then obviously everything is the domain of meditation. That's what we're doing here. So the, the words are not abandoning the subject of meditation. <clears throat> In daily life, sometimes you have to put it down. While you're here, by not abandoning the subject of, of meditation, it's meant 
the present moment. This, the subject, particular thing that you're focusing on may change, but a connection with the present moment is basically the idea. How to, how to do that without getting tight, without getting caught up, without getting confused and overwhelmed. Basically, this environment is set up so you can keep it really simple. That's the greatest aid you have. We're so used to being, you know, multitasking individuals, you know, out in the world, you know, and I for one, I grew up in New York where you kind of pride yourself how many balls you can keep up in the air, you know, and just keep from, from falling. And we all get, get good at that. The hard part is to keep it simple, isn't it? We get kind of seduced and um, running on the energy and excitement of doing a whole lot of things. And sometimes keeping things simple takes some practice because it seems like there's not enough going on. But the beauty of the practice, as many people here I know have contacted, is when there's a full-on connection to what's happening right now, you don't need to add anything else to make it a better moment. You don't need to take anything away to make it a more complete experience. It's complete just as it is. And in that simplicity, the mind can rest and connect and be whole as we practice more and more, just being with what's happening right now. So keeping it simple really can be your, your guiding principle to do one thing at a time when you're brushing your teeth, to really brush your teeth. Brushing your teeth meditation, reaching, pulling, unscrewing, squeezing. There's just that, just the squeezing of the toothpaste. Brushing, brushing. That moment of brushing your teeth is just as sacred a moment as sitting in this meditation hall, feeling your breath. I mean, it is, isn't it? What We're just arbitrarily saying, you know, it's nice we have a nice, good building, a beautiful building to help support it and make it feel very, you know, beautiful and everybody's sitting cross-legged or, you know, still and it seems very spiritual thing to do to be here in the hall and feel the breath, mm, looking like a Buddha statue. But you know what? Brushing your teeth is just as good a moment. And if you can get a sense that that, or sipping your tea, or taking a shower, or eating your food, or doing whatever you do is just as valuable and worthy of your attention as sitting here in the hall, the whole practice deepens because then your day is just a dance of awareness, one moment into another, into another, into another. And that 
attitude, the domain of meditation, doing one thing at a time leads to continuity, which is really the key to practice. Not that you're a good yogi, you'll be a you know, a good student if you stay continuous. It's just that it works. It really works if you can just keep on coming back each time. Here we are right now. Here we are right now. And then there's this moment, and there's this moment. That's how the practice unfolds. So now the, the question is, what about all those times that you're not here? What do you do with that? Because perhaps you'll find one or two moments during the day where that's so. What do you do with that? What you do with that is the key to the whole practice. Because your mind is going to wander. If it doesn't, I'd like to talk with you and have an interview with you. If you can start from the beginning of the day and not have it wander to the end of the day, okay. Ears hear, eyes see, and minds think. It's just what they do. And thought is not an enemy. It's a wonderful capacity that we have. The problem is, we usually believe most every thought that comes through. That's where we get into trouble. So, the key moment, as I see it, is the moment that you realize you've been gone. While you're gone, there's not much you can do about it. You're gone, right? You might be gone for five seconds, five minutes, 25 minutes, you're gone. So to beat yourself up for having been gone, it's kind of, it doesn't make much sense. But there's that moment when you realize, oh, I've been gone. That determines the whole experience and your whole relationship to practice. One very common response is, darn it, there I was, gone again. Let's get back here and do this right. Start crying out loud. Well, you might be aware, but there's a whole lot of judgment and discouragement and frustration and agitation when you have that response. You get no points for beating yourself up. A second very common response Hmm, I've been lost in thought. But this is a very interesting one. <laughs> Let me just go with this. Okay? And as soon as you've done that, you've bitten the bait, and you're gone for another five seconds, five minutes, 25 minutes, gone again. Okay? It takes some um, intention not to get seduced by the good ones or the troublesome ones. Oh, not that one. Get away. Boom. You've just bitten the bait again. So the response that's very much encouraged, when you see that you've been gone, that moment is the moment 
that conditions everything about the practice. And rather than feeling discouraged and frustrated, if you can appreciate the fact that you've just come back to the present, ah, here we are again. Cool. Mm. In breath, out breath. The way you bring yourself back is the key to the whole process. That's what continuity is about. Just coming back, being here as best you can while you're here, and when you realize you've gone, come on back. And if you can come back with a great kindness and forgiveness and patience and sincerity of intention to be here, that's what you're cultivating in every encounter with the wandering mind. So it doesn't matter how many times you've gone, it's another opportunity to come back in that way. That is the domain of meditation, cultivating that intention to be mindful. And that is your end of the deal. Because, as you might have noticed, you don't have control over what's going on, do you? You don't have control over how concentrated you are. You don't have control over how mindful you are. You ever come into a sitting saying, I'm going to be mindful if it kills me? You know? It might if you have that kind of an attitude. It just doesn't work. So all you need to do is bring yourself back. And then that leads to the last of the clear comprehensions, clear comprehension of reality. Clear comprehension of reality is seeing the truth of things. What is the truth of things? Everything is changing. Holding on to changing experience is painful. And taking ownership of experience is misperception. That experience is just happening all on its own. This not taking ownership, not identifying with experience, not creating a sense of self, that's the heart of the understanding that this practice uh, invites us to discover. Basically, not taking things personally. And the extent that you're free is directly related to the extent that you take your experience personally. Inverse proportion. You take it personally, there is suffering. You don't take it personally, where things are just the way they are, there's freedom. No problem at all. And it just kind of keeps on creeping up from behind us and confusing and catching us. You know, we want to just really open up to freedom, but there's this anger that gets in the way. My anger is always getting in the way. My lack of clarity is always getting in the way. My, you know, 
judgment is always getting in the way. It's the my part that's getting in the way. It's not that other stuff. That's just happening on its own. Came uh, had a, a really lovely interview with uh, with somebody who um, was realizing, you know, he came into the hall and all of a sudden, after they had been trying and trying, and uh, all of a sudden, just clarity seemed to just emerge, you know? and it was very delightful and wonderful. And then after a while, you know, something else took its place, you know, things got a little bit thicker or heavier, or, and then clarity would, would come again. And as we were talking then, he said, what did you do to have that clarity emerge? Has that ever happened to you? You just kind of, you're struggling and struggling, you just kind of give up and you, you sit down and say, Oh, boy. And then all of a sudden, boom, here you are. What did you do to make that happen? Can you bottle it? You know? Can you press the button each time? It just happens on its own, right? Oh, it just happened on its own. What did you do to lose it? I don't know. It just happens on its own. It's incredibly freeing to realize it's all happening on its own. And you don't have to take responsibility or give yourself a report card for it. Isn't that great? It's, it might seem a little discouraging at first. Oh, God, you mean I don't have any control over experience? It's so, such a gift. It was really a turning point in my practice when I realized, as much as I tried, I've got no control over the concentration or mindfulness. It's just happening. Okay? So to take credit for it is completely absurd when it's here. And to take blame for it is also completely missing the point when it's not clear. It's just happening all on its own. I can remember being on a retreat, it was really kind of moving along and, you know, fairly clear. And then I'd walk into the hall and I'd sit down and I'd be there for a while and I would have no idea what planet I was on, you know. I could have been on Pluto for, for all I knew. And it had been clear, clear, fairly clear for a number of sittings and then just sitting down, gone. Like everything, it comes and it goes. And the less you take responsibility for it, the less sense of self there is. And that's where the freedom is. Things are just as they are. But it's really tricky, you know, as soon as you kind of say, hey, it's going pretty well now. I guess I'm doing pretty good. You just created again. On one retreat I had this experience, my instruction from, from my teacher was, Notice any sense of self that's being created. And I got really excited. Okay, all right, that's cool. Let's see. I'm sitting down. No, no sense of self here right now. Okay. Yeah, no, no, it's okay. Right. And then uh, during this, this, uh, this period, somebody came in. It was actually during a walking period. Somebody came through 
the uh, walkie space that I was in, who was kind of clomping around and, and uh, uh, writing down all of his wonderful meditation experiences, because somebody at, those, at that time, a lot of people were doing the kind of reporting style where you're reporting your, your experience. And this guy was like a kind of bull in the china shop, uh, yogi. So he was clomping through and writing and, you know, making a whole lot of noise and, you know, and I looked and I thought, well, I certainly have a lot less sense of self than he does. (laughs) Whoops. Yes, I've got a lot less sense of self. Look at me. So it's really tricky. You've got to be continually freeing that sense of me or I doing anything. And all you need to do is bring your heart into the practice and let the Dharma take care of the rest. You just show up and that's your end of the deal. And notice, okay, what is happening now? Letting it be how it is and just bringing a very meeting it with a kind awareness that doesn't take ownership. That's where the freedom is. It's just doing itself. Life is doing you. I remember there was this, um, this J.D. Salinger story, Teddy, it was one of the nine stories, and he um, uh, is this uh, enlightened young boy, like I think uh, he's 11 or 12 in the story, and he talks about his enlightenment experience um, when he was about uh, eight or nine, and he was looking at his little sister uh, drinking some milk pouring some milk and then uh, pour and then and then drinking it and he was telling this this guy who was researching his experience and he said it was like god pouring god into god i love that image it's just god pouring god into god it's just life moving us around and doing its thing through these forms and the I-ness, the selfing, is completely extra. Life is doing you. And there's a tremendous ease and freedom when you realize that. So all you need to do is show up, remember why you're doing it, have a sense of suitability to your environment, and just meet the moment with a kind awareness. And when you do that, when you bring your wholeheartedness into the practice, things become revealed. I'll close with this passage uh, from the Scottish Himalayan Expedition by W. H. Murray, talking about the possibilities. Until one is committed, there is hesitancy the chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there's one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans. That is, that the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. 
All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance, which no person could have dreamt would have come their way. I've learned a deep respect for one of Goethe's couplets. Whatever you can do, or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. That's it. attention This talk was given by James Barris at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 16, 2002. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed 